Welcome everyone to today's devotion, rounding out the week in Mark chapter 12, which means uh, we have four chapters left after today. So, Lord willing, by next Thursday, uh, we will be done with the Gospel of Mark. So, again, it's the Bible is not as long as we, we often think it is. Um, if you've been following along with us from the very beginning, we started in the middle of Hebrews, actually. Um, and you've made it this far, uh, almost a year later, uh, which means we've been doing this for, for a year, this COVID stuff, then uh, you're almost done with the New Testament. So, incredible. You can never say you, you've not read and studied the entire New Testament uh, by the time we get to, to the first or second week of Mark. With that said, uh, remember that we've seen in the last three days, um, Jesus is facing a series of challenges. Uh, he is challenging the system. He's being challenged by the system. And chapter 12 is dominated by that. And it begins with a parable. Uh, he began to speak to them in parables. Verse 1, a man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Season came, sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, treated him shamefully, sent another... And him they killed, so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him them, him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. Uh, there's a lot here. Uh, I've preached on this. I've, I've preached on every verse of the Gospel of Mark. It's on the podcast. You can go to the church website and go to my website. You can you can find it all if, if you want it detailed. Um, the main thing here is Jesus is talking about the cross. He says, look, uh, over the centuries, God has sent to you the prophets. And how did you respond to the prophets? You beat them. You killed them. You discredited them. You dishonored them. And so we do have that in the Old Testament. Remember, Elijah's greatest moment, triumph, came when his life was threatened. And so he, he had to flee from the people. He, he just demonstrated the power of God. Um, how often was, was Moses at risk of his own life, of, of a coup from his own family, right? So, so we get plenty of examples of this throughout the Bible. According to tradition, Isaiah was uh, sawed in two. It's mentioned in, in Hebrews. So, so we, we, we get, um, clearly, God has sent his servants, and the people of Israel responded by uh, uh, by abusing them or even killing them. And then it, the father sends the son. And what do they do to him? They kill him. And Jesus is predicting what is coming. But this is the language of judgment, which picks up with what we saw in chapter 11. Chapter 11, you have the, 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 the cursing of the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple. This is cursing language. Um, and it's a warning to the apostles. They're going to do the same thing to you. Like the world does not like righteous people. And for some reason, the church is just now starting to figure that out. And we should have known it all along. Well, then Jesus is asked a series of questions. Uh, first, it has to do with taxes. We've talked about this before. Again, don't want to spend forever on it because then it gets redundant. Verse 13, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, notice the two people you got here. Pharisees think you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar because uh, he's evil and we're free people. Uh, you know, they're the Willem Wallace, you know. Uh, of, of, of the scene. The Herodians, on the other hand, um, are by their name pro-Rome because it's Rome that gave their boy Herod his power and position. So you have one group saying, don't pay taxes, they're libertarians. The other group are leftists, they're saying, do pay taxes. Tax the rich, tax everyone else, you know, um, and uh, 
Uh, what's what's the worst that that can happen? Yeah, government. And and so you have these two opposite sides come together because the enemy, my enemy, is my friend. And notice Jesus is critical of both the left and the right here, both extremes. And if only there was a good way to apply that. I just can't think of one for some reason. And of course they they bring him one. They they want to know should we pay taxes? Uh, Jesus' question in verse 16, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. It's a very simple application. Look, if 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 the, the coinage has Caesar's image on it, then it is his. You can give it back to him. But do not render to Caesar that which is God's. What bears the image of God? You. This is a central passage of not just our uh, understanding of, of the role of government and politics and the Christian's role in, in the public square, but really our understanding of worship. If, if, if you bear the image of God, then, then you give yourself to God. Thus, give up wealth. You know, or at least don't, don't, don't surrender to it. Don't surrender to, to greed and lust and, and, and power and, and everything else. You bear the stamp of, of God. You are made in the likeness of God. Act like it and give yourself only to Him. Right? Uh, it's a very, very important scene. And uh, everyone goes away disappointed, which is what should happen whenever we teach the gospel. When we preach the gospel, we shouldn't be siding with a political party or system. Um, verse 18 uh, then the Sadducees come, right? So you have the Pharisees and Herodians. Now you got the Sadducees. Uh, they're they're um, probably the liberal wing of the religious elites in that they deny the resurrection, as this text will show. They they only hold to the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, they they didn't believe in uh, divine beings, angels, and stuff. They didn't believe in the soul, stuff like that. Okay, so this question has to do with the resurrection, which again they reject. This shows up again in Acts, as we'll see when Paul. Paul, a Pharisees who believes in the soul and the resurrection uh, made the point around a bunch of Sadducees. Anyways, verse 19, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaves a wife, leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. Second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. The seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. The jokes are here, right? You know, if seven husbands were dying from the same wife, someone should start looking into it, right? And maybe not eat her soup drink her Kool-Aid, like literally stop, right? Uh, I, I get the jokes, but, but there's, there's more going on here. Verse 23, here's the question. In the resurrection, you need to read that as a, um, a Hollywood snob. In the resurrection, right? Only fools believe this because science. Um, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. See, 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 we prove how ridiculous it is to believe in the resurrection. And here they, 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 they snap their suspenders and they, they wear their funny uh, academic hats and they go uh, to the pub and brag to the, to the boys how awesome they are. Right? And Jesus laughs at them. Right? Because Jesus says, look, the problem is, is first of all, you, you make too many assumptions about the resurrection. What you're not trading is this world for, for, for another world like it. Uh, thus, who you're married to here is who you're married to there. That's Mormon theology, not biblical theology. Uh, rather, it says we, we inherit something better than marriage. And we get a picture of that here um, uh, on this end of, of, of uh, um, 
of heaven and the new heavens and new earth in that we refer to each other not just as husbands and wives but as brothers and sisters we are adopted into the family of God so no there, there isn't um, um, given in of marriage and stuff like that in heaven rather we are united under the banner of the gospel under God himself and we worship together as brothers and sisters joint heirs with Jesus let me make just, just a brief comment there in verse 25 when Jesus says we will be like the angels in heaven what he doesn't mean is uh, we will be like angels disembodied spirits now, we will be embodied spirits. The resurrection is a physical resurrection, not just a spiritual one. So the images of, of you know, chubby angels with small wings and how they carry those, those ch- chubby angels is beyond me. Playing harps on clouds is, is mythical. It's not biblical. Um, rather, what we need to see is embodied beings, as we are now, um, resurrected with glorified bodies, uh, free from sin and shame and guilt and, and everything else associated with this. Then notice his biblical evidence of this is not where we would expect to find it in the Old Testament. Rather, he, he, he quotes from the books of Moses. And he quotes from, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His point is, God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And don't forget the language of I am there was used when Jesus walked on water. Do not fear, I am. So again, Jesus is reminding us while dealing with um, this question, this theological question, who he really is. Well, this leads to to the second challenge, um, or third, whatever challenge we're on, um, having to do with what is the greatest commandment. So the scribes come there in verse 28, which commandment is the most important of all? Uh, They spent an inordinate amount of time talking about this. Um, this commandment is more important than that. And the reason you do that is so that you can break the ones that are deemed unimportant, right? We do this all the time, right? Um, we, we don't get too worked up if, if you have a broken taillight and you get a ticket. We do get worked up if it's a DUI, and rightly so, right? And this is natural. So, yeah, um, I, I, I get that. But they're doing it with the law of God. And so they use it as a reason to justify disobedience rather than as a motivation for obedience. That's the problem. Let me give you another example. When I was a youth pastor, and every youth pastor still deals with this today, the, um, one, of the, one of the most common questions you, you get is, how far can I go without breaking the law of God with my boyfriend-girlfriend? Right. What's the motivation there? Is I want to know what I can get away with, rather than um, think in terms of what is best, what is, what is more holy, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a wrong perspective. That's, that's why they're doing this. And Jesus quotes, as, as he's, he really did with the rich young ruler in chapter 10, uh, essentially, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your, your Lord our God is, uh, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Quoting from the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. I started a series on the Shema Sunday nights, and then, you know, more COVID happened. Uh, we'll probably eventually get back to it. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. I'm sure you, you're familiar with this. Love God, love your neighbor. We've talked about it before. In verse 33, um, the, the, the lawyer affirms it. Uh, he says, And to love God with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as yourself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Mere ritualism does not mean redemption. 
Jesus is concerned with redemption. Ritualism will not fix the heart. Ritualism and religion and ceremony will not make you love God and love your neighbor. I mean, we're doing that this week, right? It's amazing after every contentious election, the winner then says, all right, let's all come together, light a candle, sing the Coca-Cola theme song because I won. After you just spent a year or two bashing the other side. Right? Mere ceremony, mere ritualism does not heal the heart. What does? The cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Right? That is, is the point here. And well, um, I think we'll leave it at that. You, you may want to look at verse 41 to 44 with the widow's mind. We've talked about it before. I believe it's Luke's gospel. We spent more time on it uh, because of the juxtaposition between the widow's mind and the temple. Um, but uh, um, you, you can look at our treatment of it there. So with that, I uh, hope you guys have a good weekend. And Lord willing, we'll see you here next week. And we'll finish out the gospel of Mark by Thursday. Have a good one.